0: On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alameen, a Muslim leader and former Black Power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosey Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tenderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: if you could have gone back in time as an investigator what would you have worked more or tried to have done to even go further than i mean listen i know that might be a hard question because it's obvious you convinced your bosses that whatever was in the prosecutive report was way more or was was of sufficient enough information to file case but looking back now, these many years ago, what would you have worked, you know, or what angle would you have worked to dig up more information? I, w- I would have not had LAPD
2: be part of anything, and like what I originally did when I had uh, uh, the number two guy, Jim McDonald, who was able to get their whole case file for me, because if they never, if they never would have known that, that first of all, that the FBI understand. LAPD had shut this case down, basically, without officially shutting it down. They had not done anything for two years. Nothing. And it wasn't until I came knocking at the door, and I started meeting with Steve Katz, and I started looking at their file when they knew about it. If I were to go back now, if I never would have said anything to anybody other than my FBI bosses, and then with Jim McDonald getting me a copy of the case, Uh, not a copy, but the actual case file and able to look through it that first time. If I never would have said anything to anybody, I would have had all those pictures that they have of, um, of the Peterson Automotive Museum and the people that were there and, uh, the, um, the officers that were wearing, you know, like this, you know, suit and tie. They weren't wearing police uniforms. But all those pictures, I would have been able to get the picture that Big Gene told me about that uh that Cass and three others right up in their interview that they showed him that was fuzzed out. So I could have I could have gone back as many times as I want, I'm gonna assume, because Jim McDonald was really cool about things. And I'd Steve Cass would have never known that I was looking at his case file. Um, nothing ever would have been hidden. That's that's hundred percent that's what I would have done.
3: On page 15 of the legal filing is where the lawyers for Miss Wallace and the Wallace family outline the information and evidence that the city and the LAPD knew about and decided to hide not only from the family, but furthermore decided that this evidence and information was not worthy of further investigation. Because if it was, David Mack and Rafael Perez would have been charged with conspiracy to commit murder. So, here we go. City of LA and LAPD has known since March 9th of 1997 that Rafael Perez was on duty as an LAPD officer on the night of the murder. This is documented in what is called a daily field activities report.
1: The other piece of evidence is that the LAPD had in their possession the time book for LAPD officer Rafael Perez that showed that he actually worked the night of March 9th 1997 the night Biggie was murdered and this information is contrary to any LAPD statements to date about Perez
2: how did how did Sergio i mean how did he get or even find these documents how did he have if this is some like super secret file that nobody had access to Sergio wasn't was he retired at the time i mean how did he get how well, did he get he his was, hands on these
1: documents he was the private he was the private investigator for Harry right. and Miss Wallace during the civil trial, and but how did how did he get
2: think, these documents?
1: I I think in the in the process of discovery, the LAPD was so stupid that the, in in some of the stuff that they handed over, this is the okay. stuff that was in there, and they and they the, even though they were trying to hide as much information as possible. They, they just weren't. It, it's like there was so much evidence. Yeah, I feel it was like whack a mole. You know what I mean? It was like every right. time somebody would come forward or something would come come forth it was they would they would they would whack it, and then be like, oh my god, there's another thing here. Like we got to go after that. And I, I just feel like, look at how many people they needed. They needed to to sort of and knew about this stuff.
3: The city and LAPD have further known since March 9th of 1997 that evidence existed which placed an Officer Perez at the actual crime scene. This exists and is listed in a log of reporting officers at the scene of the murder. Rafael Perez was looking for actual shell casings after the shooting. And I beg the question, why would Rafael Perez? who was working Rampart crash in another neighborhood, nowhere near Hollywood, was doing at the scene of the murder of Biggie. Those rogue cops
0: had something to do with the murder of Biggie Smalls. They did the murder and planned the murder of Biggie Smalls. They were seen at the Peterson Museum. They were seen picking up bullets at a crime scene, picking up shell casing.
3: The LAPD knew since December 12th of 1997 which was nine months after the killing, that Officer David Mack tried to recruit another LAPD officer to work security for a death row associate the very same month and year Wallace was murdered. LAPD Officer Kevin Lowe advised LAPD detectives that in March of 1997, Mack requested him to work security for the girlfriend of Suge Knight. This is important. Because many people have tried to say that Mack and Suge had no relationship, and Suge has denied knowing Mack or Perez. In the civil trial, the statements by Kevin Lowe to the LAPD was never handed over to the lawyers of the Wallace family. There also exists a tape recorded interview of Kevin Lowe which has been hidden.
4: is untouchable I mean he's proven he's untouchable he that I guess the easiest way for me to explain it is is for him to to still not admit that he did the bank robbery just he there there is no boundary that he will not try to cross and I get him to talk and I think if you feed his ego he just may finally say yeah you know what fuck it I was there that night but you know what I wasn't, I was off duty, you know, just to get him to admit anything at all. To say, yeah. fuck it, yeah, you know what, I wore a suit, I was there, so what, what are you going to fucking do about it? He may be that arrogant, or he may even say, yeah, I, I was a cop, I was working that night, what are you going to do about it, yeah. type of thing.
3: Yeah. I
4: wouldn't be surprised if he even said something like that.
3: The LAPD and the city of Los Angeles lawyers knew since 1998 That Rafael Perez was in possession of cop tools at the time of Wallace's murder, and he had used these tools to commit other crimes. On May 2nd, 1996, LAPD Astro Radio Call Sign 1087 was noted missing from LAPD West Bureau Narcotics. The radio was activated on July 5th, 1997, on the LAPD's Devonshire Frequency, an area near Can-Am Studios recording studio that was used by Death Row Records. The radio was recovered on August 6, 1998, along with multiple cell phones, live ammunition contained in a box labeled Crash, Secret, and Confidential during a raid on Rafael Perez's house. These tools were in Perez's possession on March 9, 1997, the date of the murder, and November 6, 1997, the date. That David Mack robbed the Bank of America.
1: Do you think the the method of communication would have been the police radios that were found in the possession of Mac?
2: Hundred percent, because that's what we used when I when I back in when I was an agent back in the late nineties. I mean, we when we we got Nextels, We didn't have cell phones, so we would have these push to talk Nextels, and that's how we would uh, communicate when we would be doing, say, like a rolling surveillance. You know? You didn't have you didn't have cell phones, so there's no cell phone records or anything like that. Um, without question. And when you look at what was confiscated from search warrants from Mac's house, that's where they had all those radios. And that's what he used to um, when they were working rampart to communicate with, with uh with each other when they were doing all these shakedowns and stuff. That's what Mac used when he committed the bank robbery. You know, those radios, that, that, was, that was a form of communication. And all that stuff was found uh, during the search warrants of Mac's house.
3: The LAPD in the city of Los Angeles knew since 1999 that David Mack confessed to being at the scene of the murder the night of the murder. In the LAPD's interview of Benny Keyes, who was incarcerated with Mac, it was not produced to the plaintiffs until very late in the civil proceedings. The tape recording of the interview of Benny Keys has never been produced, although it should be a part of the discovery. Benny Keys was interviewed again by LAPD detectives on January 25th of 2001 where he stated that Mack indicated that he was a member of the Blood Street Gang. This interview was recorded and this audio exists. Keyes went further in the audio interview, saying he saw photographs of Mac and Perez wearing red rags. Keyes stated that Rafael Perez visited Mac in jail on two occasions and was accompanied by LAPD officer Sammy Martin.
0: Are you familiar with the Bloods Street Gang? Yes, I am very familiar with the Bloods Street Gang. And how are you familiar with the Bloods Street Gang? Through uh, Marion Knight, Shield Knight. Do you have an understanding as to whether there is a relationship or association between mr knight and, and death row records and the bloods street Gang? yes there is a major connection okay the ludus park uh bloods which is where sug is from uh they uh usually did a lot of work there at death row i'm uh, saying my part that i know of and that they are associated with with Chip knight and death row records
3: the next piece of information is interesting and in a subject matter I never covered in season one. But in this round of episodes, I must unpack it and I have additional documents to support this information. Since March 27th of 2002, a criminal by the name of Wayman Anderson admitted that he had been threatened by Rafael Perez in April of 97, one month after the slang. Perez told him to keep his fucking mouth shut about the Wallace murder while Anderson was being held for questioning in the Parker Center police headquarters. Uh,
0: Russell pool. I think it was in 1997, uh, maybe July, June, uh, he uh, we got what they call a removal order. Uh, he took me out of the county jail and moved me to Parker Center. And while I was at Parker Center, I was threatened by Rafael Perez in the cell.
3: Wayman Anderson had been transported to the LAPD Parker Center headquarters under a sealed warrant after contacting the LAPD Wallace Homicide Hotline and stating that Suge Knight had approached him in February of 97, a month before the killing, and asked for assistance in obtaining guns for a murder. Now, two things on this. First off, I'm going to investigate deeper into Wayman Anderson and really understand his backstory, which I don't know as of now. Second, and this is just a random thought, Suge Knight at the time of the murder must have known, or at least felt from a strategy standpoint, that if he included active LAPD cops in the conspiracy to commit murder, that there was a solid chance the LAPD would have to sweep the whole thing under the rug. Suge was calculating. He was diabolical. And let's be real, his strategy worked, full stop.
2: Suge Knight financed a retaliation for people killing Tupac. And his intention, he had a, he had a major beef with Puffy. His big beef wasn't with Biggie, it was with Puffy. And Puffy was the intended target. And it just so happens that Puffy had... Um, executive protection that knew what they were doing and they got him out of harm's way and the, the people that were with Biggie um, they didn't have any executive protection background and they got stuck at that light and Biggie became a sitting target and that's why he got taken out but there's there's no question um, that there was not only a big beef ongoing yeah. between Suge and Puff I mean, but when Tupac ended up getting killed, I mean, you gotta remember Suge should started, he, he ruled with an iron fist. And he has an ego, you know, bigger than the Pacific Ocean. And when he saw his number one talent, his big cash cow, uh, get killed in Vegas, um, when he put things into motion and helped finance the, uh, the kill of the biggie. And that's, that's, that's been Shug's biggest downfall. Ever since he became somebody with death row, his ego has always gotten in the way. And there's a long track record of that. Um, and you know, finally, uh, culminated in, in the killing of biggie. All
3: right. So life doesn't happen bi-weekly. So why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with earn in earn in is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work up to a hundred dollars per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn in app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to a hundred a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special, or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download. Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. In the documents on page 18, states that Wayman Anderson's cell phone was called on multiple occasions from a cloned cell phone shortly after the murder from the vicinity of the scene of the crime. Anderson has also admitted on the record that a defensive murder charge against him was paid for by Suge Knight and that Anderson was represented by former L.A. County Deputy D.A. Lawrence Longo.
5: Los Angeles Superior Court Judge John Ordiker, who two weeks ago ordered Knight into court for violating his probation and then raised troubling questions about why Knight hadn't been locked up before now.
0: And I'm looking at a long list of failures to follow court orders.
5: It turns out Knight had received probation in the first place, instead of prisons, and the all-important agreement of the deputy district attorney, Larry Longo, who had once insisted Knight should go to prison, but then did a surprising about-face. Longo denies any connection, but free of the threat of prison, Knight went on, through his lawyer, to pay Longo's family $19,000 $19,000 a month to rent a Malibu beach house. And beyond that, Knight signed the prosecutor's 18-year-old daughter to a multi-year recording contract, making her the only white artist on the death row roster, the Suge Knight way of doing business. Did you think you were trying to influence him? I do got to influence nobody. Trying to bribe him? with bribe?
3: When Rafael Perez threatened Wayman Anderson inside the LAPD headquarters, this was also documented inside an internal affairs report with the file number 02-1519. Again, these interviews of Anderson were all tape recorded and exist inside the LAPD.
2: And I'm no freaking conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but if the LAPD in concert with the city attorney's office and the LA Times is going to try to do everything they can to discredit me and shut me down and not let this case move forward or, or actually get indicted because of the repercussions that it would have on LAPD. I definitely think that internally then, I think the thing, the best thing that ever happened was uh, all these issues with Steve Katz. And I'm not saying Steve Katz is the guy that, that took the photos out of the book or took any of these documents out of the book or anything like that. But somebody did, without question. And just the fact that they knew that I was looking at this case and I would put a request in, when I went and looked at that case on four different occasions, you know, somebody went in there, whether it would be Katz at night or somebody else, to take that stuff. So I don't think LAPD wanted to make this case. And that is 100% um, why I think they took Russ Poole off the case. I mean, Russ Russ Poole was doing a kick-ass job. And once he started getting into the nitty-gritty of things and started kind of putting things together, they yanked him off the case, an 18-year veteran.
3: One fact that I think has been lost in the confusion of the Biggie murder is that David Mack, during the civil trial, sat down and was required to give a deposition. Since October 28th of 2005, the city of LA has known that David Mack lied under oath during this deposition about his death row connections as the city lawyers sat silently complicit through Mack's deposition perjury with a joint defense agreement in place. The city knows this because one of their own officers, LAPD officer Kenneth Knox, stated that he saw David Mack and Rafael Perez on multiple occasions at Can-Am studios. Kenneth Knox had a full surveillance operation going on at Can-Am studios.
0: Kendrick Knox was what was called senior lead officer in the West Valley division of LAPD. They're they're sort of a designated the very top cop in the division. And he was dealing with all these complaints about the problems at uh, a studio uh, in Encino that had been leased by Shub Knight and Death Row Records. So you had a, you know, very suburban neighborhood with a lot of gangbangers parking their cars in their driveways and confrontations and you know so he thought he was just kind of walking into that to try to smooth relations between these two separate cultures. And he found out that, um, that, you know, LAPD officers were working, uh, for death row and were in and out of the studio. So, and that, and then what made that so significant is that he tried to proceed with that investigation, but the moment he went public about it in the LAPD, his life got turned upside down. And he, not only was the investigation shut down, but he was basically scared into silence. All of the investigation that he'd done was, Erased, literally erased
3: from his computer. In season one of the dossier, one of the most compelling stories was that of Mario Hammonds and his deposition from San Quentin prison. City of L.A. has known since 2005 that Suge Knight confessed to the murder to someone other than Mario Hammonds and implicated Mac or Mackie and tied himself to LAPD officers as recently as 2005. In the legal documents and notes and exhibit, it does not say who Knight spoke to about this.
4: When Steve Katz was the case agent, okay, there was nothing done for for like two to three years. Zero, nothing. I, had, I looked at files. I mean, like I said, we had them all right there in Chief McDonald's office. There was nothing going on. The only reason, and I think it's even stated somewhere, that the only reason the LAPD even started looking back into this investigation is because the FBI was. Katz was done. I mean, let's face it. Russ Pool did a huge percentage of the LAPD investigation. And then when he finally got kicked off and Katz took over, and I think his partner was a guy named Adrian Solar, if I'm correct. I was just going through some stuff. Then those guys looked into stuff. And then whatever they looked into and they found that was of substance, it sounds like that's what Katz hit.
3: In the pantheon of storytelling surrounding Biggie and all the fuckery that has gone on within the LAPD and furthermore with the lies of Greg Cating, the story of Steve Katz has another component other than the hidden files, and that is the LAPD in the city of LA has known since October 28 of 2005, that Edward Henry, the stepbrother of Detective Katz, told LAPD detectives that Katz had told him that he was aware of information in documents implicating individuals associated with the LAPD in the murder of Christopher Wallace. Ed Henry advised the LAPD that Katz stated to him that such materials had been placed in the Forgotten File. It's a great name, the Forgotten File. That the materials would stay in the drawer, that stuff had been done to make sure that the murder would never come to light, that it would be a cold case for the duration, that he would not be trying to solve the murder, and that the murder would remain unsolved.
2: I can honestly say there's no way in hell, and this is, and, and I'm not trying to defend cats, but you don't, you don't misplace documents like this. You don't, you, you don't decide on your own to put documents like this in a hidden drawer in your desk and then say, I forgot about it. It doesn't happen. Law enforcement officers are anal about things. They document everything. If it's not documented, the theory is, is then, you know what? It didn't happen then. But there's no way that that, that Cass is going to do something like that on his own. And I, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He's, he's, he's going to take the fall for it because they were his document in
3: his death. If that information doesn't make you angry, or if that information doesn't define for you the stance of all of the LAPD investigators, then I don't know what else to say. This is a direct quote that Ed Henry told LAPD investigators that Steve Katz told him. This will be a cold case for the duration, and it's just his job to make sure that the case doesn't get solved. Katz continued with the following, and I quote, two gangbangers ain't worth one, even bad, LAPD officer. Katz felt the LAPD had been through enough trouble and referred to the Rampart scandal. Now see, Ed Henry's father, who was present during this discussion, subsequently died in April of 2006. Henry's father, believe it or not, was a former LAPD officer who was present during the discussion between Katz and Henry. The Wallace family was never able to depose Ed Henry's father to get that information on the record. The interview of Ed Henry was tape recorded and exists within the LAPD. In an interesting twist, when the city had to give this information to the Wallace family lawyers, they mislabeled the audio cassette tape as an interview of someone named Chad Taylor. Obviously subterfuge, obviously a red herring. While Sergio Robledo did give me the files that is the basis for these episodes, he also gave me another set of documents, all related to what have become known as the Forgotten Files of the Murder of Biggie. The Forgotten Files document was mentioned before but never in depth and next time on the dossier i will go in to the forgotten file and what it meant for the wallace family and what it meant for the fbi and the lawyers for the city of los angeles next time on the dossier